You are listening to EG's Resi Talks podcast. I'm Emma Rossa, residential editor at EG, and in this episode, I'm talking about retirement living reform. A year in lockdown has shone a light on housing for the elderly and most vulnerable. Over the last 12 months, we've seen momentum grow behind various calls to action for government. Just last week, 40 signatories backed an open letter to the Prime Minister calling for support to expand housing and care provision. In this podcast, I'm joined by Eugene Marchese, co-founder of developer Guild Living, Will Bax, chief executive of Retirement Villages Group, and former housing minister Mark Prisk. Last June, Mark wrote an article for EG with a plan for retirement housing reform. Here, he begins the conversation explaining why the country is failing and what needs to happen. I think there's been a failure to recognise both the problem with the existing housing stock and the demand for the kind of homes that are suitable for, for older people. Uh, remember, there's about 2 million people who are currently of retirement age living in homes that are completely unsuitable for them in terms of accessibility, in terms of their ability to, to benefit from the, the accommodation they, they have. So I think, there, there, first of all, there's a, a failure to recognise that existing housing stock which needs to be dealt with. And then, and this may be more sort of relevant from the context of this podcast, is looking at what additional homes can be built and the quality and the character of those so that the quality of life, something I know Eugene's talked about quite rightly, can be focused on rather than just longevity as if that in itself is is an end game. I think there's a critical challenge here. One is that in the absence of getting critical care and social care dealt with together in government, there's been a failure to then recognise the role that housing can play in that. Um, so we need change in terms of the better integration of social and health healthcare. But for that to be completely successful, the role of homes that are suitable for people of older ages, whether we want to call it retirement homes or whatever, and we can get into that, that actually has to be dealt with as part of the reforms to social and healthcare. And I think that what's needed here is a clear, consistent regulatory framework, a clear fiscal framework, so investors are encouraged that they can come into this marketplace and invest with confidence. And also, I think a strong set of changes around the planning rules, around building regulations, and also potentially around the benchmarking for consumers so that they understand what is available in the market, they understand the different terms used, and also they have benchmarks against which they can judge for their future needs. So I think there's quite a comprehensive uh, range of activity needed. Um, And for me, it's about both the new homes that we build, but it's also about looking at the existing housing stock as well. I mean, that's a great point to to jump in. I mean, Eugene, what have your experiences been and what support do you need to be able to kind of expand? Uh, Yeah, um, thanks, Emma. And and Mark makes a, a number of points that we could probably spend three hours talking about each one of those. Um, but there, you know, if you if you take the sixty thousand foot view of where housing for older people has failed in the UK, and and you want to do a comparison with sort of Australia, New Zealand, and the US, um, there, there is there has just been a general understanding and uptake of that type of housing in those other three markets. That hasn't occurred in the UK, and and I think, I think that's probably driven by uh, government policy. You know, there was a there was a dis, it was distinctly um, keep people at home in their own homes, and we can provide care to them. Now we know that that model doesn't work generally. I mean, there's always going to be, you know, uh, exceptions to the rule, and there are exceptions to that rule. But 
like keeping children at home and teaching them on a computer hasn't worked in the last 12 months has proven that. So the, the notion that we can look after the fastest growing segment of the population individually within their own existing homes that are now not typically not suitable for their changing circumstances becomes a challenge too big to to take on and 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 that failure has really driven this sort of new segment in the UK market that's been around for probably you know 30 or 40 years in Australia New Zealand and the US and and I think this understanding of that product has been the biggest roadblock for people like Will and you know other other providers in this new segment in the UK because it's not new everywhere else having come out of an eight-day um, public inquiry with uh, Elmbridge Council and trying to explain what housing with care is and how it differs from care homes was one of our biggest challenges for the eight days. I mean, we spent hundreds of thousands of pounds with experts trying to explain to the other side, the, the council, that housing with care is actually a good thing for the community. And it's not, it's not care homes. You know, the UK had keep people at home until they can't stay at home anymore, anymore, and then put them in a care home. And that step change just hasn't been available in the UK. And, and what Will and others are doing is providing that product that sits in the middle of that. And there are so many advantages with providing a step change of, of you know, allowing people to move out of their homes that are inappropriate into appropriate housing, into communities that are set up for them, and we're not talking about, you know, gated off enclaves of old people. It's active, vibrant, lifestyle-driven product that, you know, that, that, again, Will and others are doing that provides that nice, seg you know, segue into your third age. Now, it takes, it, it takes a bit of time and quite a bit of time for the public and society and markets to understand that. And... Having sat through that eight-day hearing, I sat there and I went, you know, like, people just don't get it. And, and you know, we're, we're three from three refusals at councils when, you know, pretty much the officers supported it, but the council, the politicians who make up the decision-making processes at local council level just didn't even understand it. And so you can change policy at the federal level and you can have this sort of framework for all these things to happen, like, you know, like was you know, spoken about for days in our case against Elmbridge about policy and, you know, government encouraging housing, you know, housing with care and it's a good step change. But when it doesn't, when there is no pressure on the council at the local level, then you're almost fighting a losing battle. And, and I believe there needs to be greater impetus on policy being pushed onto council, not to force them to do something that's not good for them, but if you think of the benefits, you know, the housing release, the, you know, the reduction of GP visits, the, you know, the, the, all those things that Housing yeah. with Care provides, the council, politi the politicians in council, not the officers, but the political will isn't there at the local level. And I think until you change that, people, I mean, we're fortunate that we have legal in general, which is, you know, uh, which is patient and understanding and, and they get that, you know, three refusals from three applications um, is is a bad thing but you know hey let's go on let's go on and fight this and let's make sure this happens but you know private investors would be freaked out by that you know yeah. smaller investors would go why would we you know invest in a product that that local council politicians mind you I'm not saying the officers don't yeah. get mm -hmm.
Mm-hmm. Well, what's your sort of experience of that been in terms of understanding, you know, higher level government, but also on the local level? And you you also have the benefit of backing from AXA as well. Uh, you know, you've got that force behind you. But what has your experience been? Well, I, I mean, I agree with much of what Eugene's saying around the stigma that cuts across you know, these issues and, and a sort of misunderstanding, I suppose, of what age appropriate housing what that conversation should be about and yeah society's perception of aging has become focused on its challenges rather than its opportunities and that's a societal issue um, that has never been brought into sharper focus and it has been during the pandemic and quite simply it just lumps everyone together and talks the language of care rather than exploring solutions that help people to live independently and in a way that supports well-being and fundamentally keeps them out of hospitals and care homes. And I think, you know, what Eugene and I are trying to do is keep people out of care homes. You know, it, it's a design environments that maximise the opportunity of integrated living um, in a way that sees that that extraordinary population of older people, you know, more than 12 million of them over 65 in the UK, as the glue that binds society together rather than a sort of afterthought that comes way, way down at the end of the queue after millennials and and other economically active groups. Um, How does that, you know, in my experience, um, having come into the sector recently, I'm two years in, um, has, and yeah, having spent my career in, uh, you know, city building um, across sectors, has been it's been fascinating actually and there is clearly a political misalignment that starts with policy and an absence of it on on the government's agenda and that flows through to a situation where only 50 percent of local authorities have any informed point of view on um, how they're providing for their aging populations and you know if, if that's your start point in terms of the alignment of policy you're in a weak uh, you know weak position however where policies do exist and that political will at a local level exists, we I've had uh, quite a different experience. And you know, we have a, a scheme that's going through planning, two schemes that have been going through planning, one in Chester and one in Ashton Woking, which uh, is a, an area that I know um, Eugene knows well. And the political alignment has been strong there because you know we're we're speaking with with actors who have grappled with some of these issues around uh, aging that have engaged very deliberately in the debate um and we have driven good outcomes as a result however that's the exception as opposed to the norm and um i completely agree with with the point eugene says that it there are two pre- preconditions to that one is yeah the policy constructs and yeah the local authority having to work too hard given the lack of central guidance coming from government but the preconditions are a long-term low cost of capital minded investor who's willing to take a very long-term view and there are very few of them out there you happen to have two of them on this call but you know we're we're the exceptions as opposed to the rule Mm. And a, a local authority that has, uh, as I say, uh, ignored the lack of guidance from central government and has taken it upon themselves to grapple with this issue in a in a far-sighted way and is open to a conversation that helps them inform the debate. Uh, because actually, planning officers, yeah, remain ill-equipped to 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 navigate through the complexities of these issues. 
I mean, is this a reflection of challenges in wider planning or is this a reflection of local government kind of not understanding the nuances of retirement housing and, and the benefits of it, to be honest? I, mean, I think I, I agree with Eugene about the, the need for education with local councillors. Um, and you, you do that partly by having clearer, sensible guidance and policy from the centre. But there's also a deeper issue here, which I think is the fact that District councils who very often are making planning decisions are separate from county councils who deal with social care. So it's an area where the councillor just brings a general knowledge of healthcare as a subject and no more than that. And there is an education role here where the health service should be working more closely with social care. And the two of them should be actually talking to their local planning councillors about the genuine nature of this demography, the different needs, keeping older people independent longer, so that there's a, a better sense of where that lies. Then I think in planning terms, you do need to say to local authorities, this is your demographic. As part of your local plan, we would expect you to be providing this amount of homes that are suitable for older people. And by the way, the building regulations need to change so that those homes are genuinely lifetime, you know, they're age proof. So category two or, or or whatever class you want to put onto it. So I think I think I, I agree with the education role around with councillors, um, because very often they come to this with a general knowledge and not an understanding that goes beyond, you know, current headlines. Uh, and that's a role for central government, but I think it's also a role for NHS England and the county council in each area or the unitary authority, whoever has social care policy uh, at heart, because the separation has created that silo thinking and you end up with a planning committee that comes at it from a point of view of some general knowledge and perhaps a hint that maybe bungalows are the answer. And, you know, that. That, that's my worry is that very often I've talked talk to different councillors and very often the first word that comes up is bungalows and there's a difficulty in moving beyond that and that suggests that actually there's a lot of uh, a lot of education that's needed. And just to add to, to Mark's point I think that education has to be deeper than just the benefits to the social care system that um, allowing people to live in their homes and that's basically what we're doing we, we, we're just changing the home but they're still staying in their homes you know yeah. they're whether it's an apartment or a, or a, or a bungalow, whatever it is, um, it is basically giving them an appropriate home, you know, where, where uh, you know, being able to manoeuvre from the bedroom to the bathroom doesn't become a journey up a stair, where, you know, which you can't do. You know, I mean, how many stories have I heard since I've been in the UK for the last four years that people are converting their two-storey homes into a single storey and, you know, they're living downstairs and the upstairs doesn't get lived in? I mean... The equity that's tied up in that is ridiculous yep. that sits there. Um, secondly, you know, uh, the, you know, if they do end up going upstairs, the number of falls that are occurring, and there's all these other statistics that are coming out. So there's education around the release of all of these benefits, equity, the release of that home to families. Yeah. Because you know, typically they're rattling around in a two, three, four bedroom home, single or two people. So those families are more appropriate for, for for young families, and we're seeing the outward movement of young families of city, you know, like from the central London, because the pandemic has now proved that having a garden is actually important, and all these things. So you've got the release of those homes, but the families that are moving into these homes that have been released, they're coming from smaller dwellings, more affordable dwellings. So you've got you've got this blockchain event happening all the way back to, you know maybe three or even four movements by the release of a larger family home 
um, that you know is probably more affordable than, than selling new ones because it probably needs renovation. So you can enter the market at a lower rate. You can do those whatever. All those. So there's so many of those benefits that that you know we again I've sat through an eight day hearing and you start to talk about these things and they and you know and you can see that you can feel the responses going well we never thought about that and and then you add to that the you know the greatest amount of equities is is really in the 65 year olds plus that they own basically all the wealth in the country typically and so you're bringing those people out into an environment that now they're being encouraged to spend back into high streets or back into town centres and all these benefits that come from that and they don't jump on the train or the tube and head into you know city centres to go to work they are there during the day so when you look at what's happening to high streets or what has happened to high streets and the collapse of high streets and and a lot of these trends are going to be here for a long time we're probably never going to leave you know are you going to buy your hammer anymore uh, you know going get jumping in the car or jumping in the tube tube drawing, looking for a um for a store or you're now going to just order it on amazon and i'm talking about hammers and things that you know that we used to have to get in the car to go to you know those trends are with us forever now so we need to find new high streets new reasons for high streets and having permanent populations will help that and this is not this is nothing new i mean you know i've got a house in the middle of tuscany it's got a town square and you go there on a wednesday at two o'clock and it's full of people it's full of grandparents looking after the grandchildren and the shops and the cafes and everything flourishes because of that permanent population there is all of this education that needs to happen obviously start building them and the evidence will start to become clear. Uh, I mean, just, just coming in off the back of that, I think one of the issues that we probably contend with here, and it sort of plays into the point around education as well as cracking the stigma, is you know, what these communities have looked like in the UK over the past 40 years. Typically, they've been gated in the middle of nowhere disconnected really from the communities and, and society that, that sort of sits around them. Yeah, that's changing you know, with, with what Eugene and I are, are promoting, which is an urban, you know, highly connected, integrated model. The, the hope has to be that as soon as some of these developments start to manifest and people have an opportunity to, to engage with a completely different proposition, yeah, that mindset shift that I think is required from policymaker all the way through to customers starts to move more quickly. And the project that I mentioned a moment ago in West Byfleet, we're building 200 homes there, but alongside that, we're building 17,000 square foot of local amenity retail space. We're providing a public library. We're providing a, a gym that will be open to the local community. We're, the restaurant space will be open to the local community. We're looking at co-working and community facilities. I mean, it will be the hub of that town centre uh, and we're building a new public square and you know it's a completely different it's a massive paradigm shift and it you know it's rooted in placemaking and community activation and you know uh, talks to benefits you know to Eugene's point in a very broad way from not only the customer benefit of being able to live in a more appropriate setting with the support required uh, as and when it's needed um, and the social network there, you know, providing that interest and purpose that is you know, so missing often in the current paradigm. But it's a massive regeneration play for the town. And actually, that's where we were able to create the most political al alignment. Um, the impact to the housing market as we as that customer group releases bed spaces 
which, by the way, is completely silent. Yeah, this is an issue that the government is completely silent upon in their build, 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 build agenda. But if you look at the envelope of opportunity to release beds into the housing market, uh, I've seen estimates ranging from half a million to two and a half million beds that are tied up by this demographic. And yet, yeah, we have no route to unlocking them. So the benefits are enormous all the way through the stack from customer, local authority, local community, uh, and yeah, what I'd call strategic. But they do require big shifts in, in policy. And I think, yeah, there are three things. There's planning and a use class that levels the playing fields between age-appropriate housing uh, and market residential housing. There's regulation and looking at you know, whether or not a thousand year or a 125 year leasehold interest is the right contract for someone in their 70s to be buying. And there's the tax incentive that really encourages people to make that step and to downsize. And if if we can see change in, in those areas alongside this new generation of product coming online, uh, my sense is that, you know, this uh, this market starts to move quite quickly. We're at a tipping point right now. On the policy ask, we've seen a lot of ask in terms of, you've all talked about the planning there, regulation, taxation, and just other ones to consider as well, kind of um, specifically around stamp duty was uh, something that's been spoken a lot about recently. And Homes England um, having targets. I mean, Eugene, what do you think about that? Yeah, I'm going to let Mark jump in, but just really quickly on the stamp duty um, discussion, I can tell you in Australia and New Zealand, when they eliminated stamp duty for retirement communities, the government stamp duty pot exploded because it was that second and third sale where they were, you know, they were releasing housing into the market and the stamp duty gain from a, you know, from a four bedroom home is, is significantly more than a stamp duty gain from a two bedroom apartment. So, uh, we actually saw an increase in in revenues, in stamp duty revenues, by eliminating stamp duty for the last purchase. That's the evidence. I, I think there's a strong argument for the last time buyer being actually more front and centre in policy. Of course, uh, with housing becoming unaffordable for many young people, a lot of policy focuses on helping the first time buyer. But, you know, I do think that the last time buyer if we can get the policy right, and I'm open to the notion of, of taking SDLT away from that, so that, as, as Eugene's rightly said, you can then help to unlock the rest of the chain. You know, I see it in Hertfordshire, where we have many older ladies living alone in uh, now in their four-bedroom-plus homes, struggling to cope. The house is inappropriate, but the choice at the moment available to them that's within a reasonable proximity, either to where they live or to where their families now live, and which is accessible, uh, which uh, gives them a degree of freedom and, you know, just is is suitable, is very limited. And they don't necessarily want to go down the, the, the leasehold route that some providers offer. They're cautious about renting and they're they're unclear about, you know, what's in the marketplace and where do they go and how do they do it? So I think the other part of this is getting the language, which isn't just about language, but is about clarifying what we're actually talking about here when dealing with planning committees, when dealing with the public. And maybe, you know, saying that this form of housing will have a clear benchmark that government has agreed with the industry so consumers know what it is that they get when they're buying a certain type of, of home and what the relationship is between support and subsequent care and so on. And I think that's that's where government can use its what I call its convening power to get all the different players around the table. And ARCO's put a perfectly sensible set of proposals together, which I think shapes that. 
Um, so, uh, you know, planning reform. I think the other thing, it does take a little time. I mean, I, I helped uh, get bill to rent up and going as an asset class in this country. Again, you know, not rocket science. America's done it for donkey's years uh, and indeed have many other countries. And I think one is making sure you've got enough of the major patient players, people with patient capital in, in the market. Thankfully, in this market, we have players like LNG and others who are willing to do that. That's great. But then you need a clear language, a clear regulatory framework for supply. And I think uh, looking at where there are legitimate tax changes like SDLT, I, I probably would do it for a tax change that the consumer recognises necessarily than trying to incentivize the investor. I think investors are, will, will come into the market if the regulatory framework is clear and consumers understand what they're buying, then government doesn't need necessarily to subsidize the provider in those circumstances. Do you think, Mark, with those sorts of um, mechanisms in place that the government would be able to or or there's a requirement to commit to rigid targets in terms of retirement living um, delivery? I think with government, whether it's national or local, you need benchmarks or targets or goals if, th- if change is going to happen. If you simply set out guidance or whatever, the chances of getting all local authorities to recognise that actually they've got to change behaviour, they've got to change policy locally, ain't going to happen. You've got to set certain goals. I, I, I would... Uh, I'm a great believer in trying to work out what it is that changes people's behaviour. And usually it's providing them with positive motivation to do that, positive incentives. So you could, but sometimes you do need a you need a stick as well as a carrot. So I would have goals and targets because I think in order to kickstart change, you need something where local authorities say, right, you know, we've got a new we've got to do this, guys. It's not a question of choice. We've got to do it. Support it with education so that people can understand the thinking behind it. But unless you set some form of target, it ain't going to change. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just coming on that. My strong sense is that without targets, we won't see the degree of policy transformation required. And yeah, the simple reality is that the ageing population dynamic is a ticking time bomb. And it's a near time bomb. In 15 years, the number of 75s and over is expected to increase by 60%. The number of 85s and over will double. In, and that is the blink of an eye. Yeah. Um, that Without targets, the inherent short-termism of politics that exists both at a central and a local level is not going to solve this issue. Well, if you have to think about the cost to the government of the last 12 months, cost to the government for the last 12 months. Yeah. Um, we're in the trillions. And, and, and it'll probably be double that by the time we get out of this in three years' time, because it will take three to four years for herd immunity, vaccines, the rest of the world, all those sort of things, because we're going to be on this bumpy ride for the next five years. Now, when you look at the numbers, right, and how many deaths in the UK, 150,000, something like that, of those occurred in care homes, right? So we're at 50,000 deaths in a year in care homes. Now, the government's reaction was NHS, um, you know, uh, furloughing, um, you know, shutting down the whole economy, um, people, you know, mental health. I mean, we aren't seeing the beginning of the impact of this these last 12 months. Children, middle-aged, adults, senior people, right through society. There was 900 deaths in Australia. And I think it was 150 in care homes, and it was particularly in one small pocket. Now, 
even if you know Australia is one third of the population of the UK, even if you triple it, even if you times it by ten, even if you times it by twenty, you don't get close to those numbers. The the ability of housing with care to address pandemics in a way that kept people safe was the only reason that it didn't happen in Australia and New Zealand. Now, you know, if someone doesn't stop and go, why didn't it happen there and why did it happen here, then it's a lost opportunity. There's an easy lesson to be learned. And this notion of taking care from one house to another house to another house and the whole cross-contamination and the house could have been a care home, this notion that we can provide care on a ad hoc basis from home to home is just nonsensical and the impact is worth trillions because that's where all the all the contamination all the infections all the hospitalizations typically were people over the age of 60 years old now if there's not a lesson in that in how, what it costs the government to make sure to will's point that the biggest growing population of any country being the over 65s is going to impact the future of the country. But if the last 12 months isn't a lesson in that, then we should all give up. It's it, a pretty it, compelling uh, argument, but. Well, um, pretty but simple. What, <laughs> it's, it's actually not that complicated. No. And yeah. we all make it complicated, it ain't that complicated. But at the same time, you know, it is a compelling argument, but how responsive have you, have you found that government is to having that conversation for that wider reform in light of what we've seen over the last 12 months? I have been bogged down with three planning appeals <laughs> with councils who do not understand the problem. Yeah. I mean, and, and you have to get granular in this because investors get granular. Investors go, what is the what is the... What is the percentage of of success of us investing, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds or billions of pounds in this sector? What are the chances of getting a return on the investment? Because at the end of the day, Marcus, I agree, positiveness does drive behaviour, but economics is a bigger driver of behaviour. And if the economics is uncertain, you won't get investment. And at the moment, it's uncertain. I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And uh, that's why I think... Uh, those those arguments are very powerful. Uh, central government, you know, the bandwidth in the last 12 months has been completely overstretched. They've just been firefighting, frankly. And they've also been waiting for when Department of Health social care is 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 delivered. But now I think actually the next six months could be a very good time to fight that argument that Eugene has just expressed, which is a good one. The argument about the broader argument about people being able to stay in at home, doesn't need to be in the current home, at home for longer. And then I think also the argument of unlocking the rest of the housing chain to be able to provide more homes more quickly. I think that's actually quite a powerful set of arguments to, to do that. And uh, and that's where you need either the housing minister or certainly one or his colleagues, the parliamentary undersecretary, the number two, to be able to lead that task force, drive that through so that you've got a joint approach on planning, building regulations, fiscal incentives, so that actually then local government is getting a clear, consistent message from central government about what they're expected to achieve. To add to that, I mean, it, I mean to, to, in response to your question, Emma, I, I sense that this is now being taken 
seriously in government. You know, the ARCO's call for a task force, which, you know, I'm sitting on their board and 100 percent you know, supportive of, seems to be gaining real traction. And, yeah, that's very positive. And, yeah, the need for that task force is born out of the points that everyone has made earlier around, yeah, the complexity of this issue is spanning so many different government departments. You know, it's as relevant to, to social care and healthcare as it is to housing, uh, if not more so. But I do think that, you know, the lens I put across this is what kind of society do we want to be off the back of COVID? And, you know, do we want to be the society that, you know, creates the opportunity to lock people away when, you know, they finally are unable to live by themselves anymore because, you know, the options available to them have just simply been so poor? Or do we want to be the kind of society that puts you know, older people back at the heart of our thinking and creates the, the intergenerational opportunities that we know are just extraordinarily valuable in creating longevity at one end and creating you know, meaningful connection and understanding um, you know, at the other end of that generational spectrum uh, with the younger folk? And the response to that, I hope is pretty clear in a post-COVID world. That you know, the, the the construct that we have in not all Western uh, societies, but you know, certainly the the one that we look at in the UK, when for at least six months of this year it was dominated by people dying in care homes, it is a failed model. And you know, we need something demonstrably different. And by the way, during that period, our business that you know, supports uh, nearly 2,000 people across the UK and in our existing retirement communities, we had 15 infections. And, uh, and only a small proportion of those actually led to, to, to people um, who sadly died. So the benefits of this scenario to help people to get through the most pressing, difficult times are just pre-evident and the the sector actually hasn't spoken with you know particularly openly about that because you know there's been a sense of not wanting to tempt fate and you are still being in the the pit of a very challenging scenario but the experience that that our communities had through the pandemic was completely different it was supported it was sociable it was safe um, and they come out of the back of it, you know, with with a renewed hope that that not only they're going to be able to revert to normality quicker than most, but that actually the dividend of the choice that they made will be more available to more people. If we're to look at this moment right now, you know, what should the immediate focus be? And if each of you were to have a single ask of, you know, how does the government reform this and lead an expansion of quality retirement housing at scale? You know, what would that ask be? Uh, well, I, I would say that you you need uh, at a ministerial level across Whitehall a task force to devise a strategy which is about a clear legal, regulatory and fiscal framework so that then the industry can invest with confidence and consumers can understand the new dynamic. Yeah, I, I'd second that, Mark. I, I think you hit a nail on the head. And, and I think the continued uh, education by people like ARCO and, and individual operators and, and, and providers. Um, but I think this task force probably needs to look at um, examples just like everyone does around the world. You know, you know, there's already information there. There's already yeah. people doing stuff. We just need to be less myopic. And I say this in Australia as well. Um, please don't think I'm accusing the UK of being myopic. It's 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 what we do. You know, we all think we've got the solution, and we become 
very insular and, and you know very inward looking if we start looking outwards the solutions are there and i think then it needs the government you know as mark eloquently put it to to take a lead on this and to really push down at the local level because that's where the decisions are made and that's where confidence is built or lost yeah and you know uh, i keep coming back to my experience mark uh, well, you know, you, you, and look, don't get me wrong, we have been in, in discussions with other councils where it's been much more positive. But interestingly, where there are large pockets of older people, um, there seems to be the res- this resistance. And I think it just simply comes down to lack of education or lack of understanding of what housing with care is as opposed to care homes. Yeah, I think that's right. So, I, I mean, I, I think both of them are right. I mean, the big ask is this task force and, and mandating it properly uh, and urgently, actually. However, in order to provide a little bit of diversity, I will go for tenure. I think it is extraordinary that the way of accessing this product uh, tends to be through the acquisition of 100-year contracts. Uh, that feels entirely outdated and completely inappropriate. We've talked about some really serious topics today, but we're also, this is a really optimistic conversation as well about how to get to a better way. What is it that gives you hope and inspires that to leave on a positive note? I think for me, it's the fact that there are major players who have patient capital willing to invest says to me that you know you've got demand, you know you've got potential providers, therefore there is a solution if we can only grasp it. And I think, you know, there was no interest in investing this whatsoever uh, and demand was low, then you'd be beating your head against a brick wall. But the two core elements are there. What's just needed is some leadership in the middle. You know what, I think it's, um, my, my optimism is principally rooted in the the intergenerational dividend that comes with delivering through on some of the proposition that, that Eugene and I in particular have, have been talking about today and are seeking to promote. And yeah, I remember vividly the first meeting I had with one of my residence committees on on taking the role at, at RVG as, as chief executive. And it was one of the most brilliant conversations I'd had for an awfully long time because, and, and it really reconnected me with the wisdom, the thoughtfulness, the ability that comes with with age it strikes me as a peculiar thing that we have lost sight of that and our ability to leverage it collectively for the greater good and my hope is that we in putting old people back at the hearts of our communities those communities become an awfully lot richer for it um my mind's along the same lines as wills what makes me so excited honestly every day to wake up is the stories I get back from families a friend of mine rang me and said you know my, my father passed away three years ago mum hasn't been the same you know she's not eating she's now depressed seven months after moving into a, a community housing with care I, I had the conversation with the daughter again and I said how's your mum and she said you're not going to believe it I asked her if we could come over for dinner on Friday and she said um, I'll have to check my diary because I think I'm I'm booked out. Now, the impact not only on, on Mary, who was the lady who moved into the retirement queue, n- not only on her life, but her whole family's life. You know, the peace of mind that goes with that and that unlocking of social issues that impact us in ways that money and, and policies and all those things can't have an impact on is the reason why I'm so optimistic about this. And the feedback we are getting through 
just social media and so on of people going, we can't wait for you to build something because that's the sort of place I've been looking for or I've been waiting for somewhere for my mum or my dad or both my parents to find something like this. And, well, I should send them through to you. But but the reality is this is going to have a huge a huge impact on how, to Will's point, how we, we live as we get older and how our children live with us and our grandchildren and how we live with our grandparents and so on. So it's an exciting sector because it has such a massive social impact.